Hello, this is Radio Door Nerd. Uh, we're beginning to be reviewing. Uh, this is episode 62 in our uh, Doors of the Old West series. Uh, we've been looking at a lot of saloon doors lately, and the thing about those, well, we have a special guest, a door expert, uh, who was a high-ranking member of the Derg in Ethiopia, uh, Lizbeth Franzek. Liz, a lot of people think that saloon doors are just through sort of bursting through, both arms forward, hidden to the side. But in fact, you can also be pushed through saloon doors. Is that is that uh, is that correct? <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm not an improv star, but that was very funny. Thank you. Also, I don't know I who like, I was imitating. I don't know who that. that voice was, but I liked it. That wasn't. That wasn't. To be clear, for those of who hasn't heard the Warner, that was neither of them. That was, you know who it was? Who? I was doing Adam Driver. Oh. Because <laughs> we just, we talked talk about how he's canceled. Ghouls. I was doing Driver. That wasn't a bad driver. Thank you. Oh, that's, Liz. Uh, I'm the door nerd. <laughs> Not, I'm, 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 uh, please drive me to uh, Urban so, Salvage. I'm sorry, but why is he getting canceled? Uh, looks like he, uh, invented several new slurs. No. Um, uh, no, uh, I believe he was caught selling fentanyl. No. <laughs> uh, I did just read that King Jong, in the, in the two seconds, uh, while my, uh, G-chat crashed, I did read that, read that, uh, the, the intelligence community, which I hate that phrase, yeah, me too. is saying that Kim Jong-un is in the hospital after, <gasps> uh, like, bad. He had a surgery, something went wrong. Uh, and, but the, here's the thing, obviously by the that. time this episode comes out, we'll know one way or the other, but at, this news just broke. And as of this episode, you know, we have no idea. Um, I will say that news out of, uh, out of the DPRK in North Korea is almost always, I don't know if this will be, but uh, oftentimes it's sourced from like South Korean, like basically tabloid papers. Mm. And so I'm withholding judgment also so that I'm not wrong. But no, I have no idea because it, it could be any. I, I'm going to need some some second, third opinions on this. Yeah, you're not ready to confront that that might be a possibility. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So we have today. Uh, well, let's introduce ourselves first. I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are joined by producer Chung Chomsky. Uh, and we are true or not. That was a, a last back in the driver there. Ghouls. <laughs> it was good. We're t- we got a big special guest today. Fuck. No, fuck. Sorry. I should, no, keep going. But I should have said, I should have said that Adam Driver got canceled because they found out his real name was Adam Screwdriver. I fucked up. I want to be accountable to you. I should have said that. I'm sorry. And that's where we should put the music. <laughs> Just put the gun down. I sorry. It's I. The problem is I keep it in my desk drawer, and when we start recording, I start fidgeting, and I open the desk drawer. You're always what fidgeting. Do I, say? I can see through the camera too. I always see your little. I see. I understand that, but 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 you guys told me I wasn't allowed to play with a gun while we record anymore because it makes noises when I open the <laughs> cylinder and stuff. And but the thing is, I jewel too much when we record, and so in my brain, I'm like, I'm smart. I'll put it in this fucking drawer, and then you Close see the, the gun. Drawer. 
yeah, I see the gun and I'm like, fuck. And then I have to put the gun away like two minutes later because I realize <laughs> I'm being loud because I'm playing with it. And then I see the jewel and I take the jewel out. So it's not, it's a bad, it's a cycle. That's what they call it, a cycle. I'm literally, I'm putting both in the drawer right now and closing the drawer. Liz, introduce the episode instead of humiliating me. All right. Well, we've got big special guest today, Mark mm-hmm. Ames from The Exile Fame, of course. Also, uh, Radio War Nerd. And we're talking, what are we talking? We're talking Russia. We're talking Corona. We're talking Yeltsin. We're talking mm-hmm. Putin. Mm-hmm. We're talking money. Mm-hmm. Briefcases full of money. Oligarchs. Larry Summers. Uh, you know, all our favorite guys. We're playing the hits here, baby. Yeah, so, well, let's get to it. What's up, Mark? How you doing? Um, tired a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Kids are exhausting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially, really I'm sure during exhausting. this too. Yeah, we just. Um, I got paranoid uh, from talking to uh, one of our Radio Warner, our most sort of popular Radio Warner guests from Northern Italy. I'm familiar. Italy, you know, who goes by the Klitschka, uh, by the nom de guerre of, of Anibale, and. Um, he just he, he put sort of the, the fear of God. I mean, he, he actually tried not to. He just tried to sort of tell us how it is because uh, Northern Italy is like three weeks ahead of yeah. us. And, um, and basically he said, you know, you're probably screwed. Everyone, everyone here thinks things are really bad here. And from what we're seeing here, we think you guys are going to be more screwed than we are. Um, but just look for a few signs. Basically look for how your political leaders are... Um, handling this and maybe we're wrong you know maybe the, maybe they'll take it seriously and uh, you know you know obviously trump wouldn't but you kind of hoped hope against hope you know it doesn't matter how many decades you're alive you'll keep thinking you know the liberals when it comes down to it they won't be stupid on this or but yeah uh, yeah you know and then i flip on the radio the next morning and um there's Cuomo saying there's no evidence that children can pass the virus on to people. They're yes. like, they have magical powers, like in the Lord's Resistance <laughs> Army, where, you know, they can't get bullets. Bullets don't the hurt ghost them. The ghost shirt. <laughs> and, uh, and then de Blasio was saying there's no need for testing. Testing is, you know, so 20th century or some bullshit. And, um, and, and no, de Blasio was even worse. He said, people are saying uh, they want to keep kids at home. Uh, they want to keep the uh, kids out of school. And um, I mean, basically, it was the teachers that were saying, we don't want to go to school and yeah. die also. Yeah. And, uh, but parents were also saying that we don't want our kids there. And, and, pe- but, and people were complaining. And he said, do you realize if we cancel schools, that means kids are going to be at home? Do you know what kids will be like? They'll be restless. Then parents won't be able to work. This, these guys had no fucking clue that a pandemic or... They're just paralyzed, you know. They're yeah. absolutely paralyzed. And I kept, um, I kept waiting to see like how long like it was going to take before they put the gun to their head and shut down Broadway because that was like the that to me was like when I knew they were finally taking it seriously because yeah. they were just like waiting till the last possible moment where they're like how much money can we squeeze out yep. yeah. for the city before before it's a billion dollar year industry. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was bad. That that scared me. I mean, that's when you're sort of like, 
you are kind of in that horror movie where no one, you know, no one around you is taking it seriously. And yeah. and what also freaked me out, so there's a guy in my building, so we live in a 37th floor, sort of one of those lottery government subsidized buildings. And my, my wife got lucky we won a lottery. And um, there's one guy, as there must be in every building, who's the guy who knows everything. And, um, and he really kind of does, like every little trick, every little way of working the system, everything that you should be doing that you're not doing, he's always there to kind of tell you with a with a smug smile on his face. And I saw him um, the last day, I think I had my kid in school, his kid is in my, my kid's class. And I, I said, you know, I started talking again, like we probably should cancel school and you know, this thing is really serious and we should think about even getting out, out of New York or something. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And so this is the guy who actually in the horror movie is the guy that tries warning everybody and then gets killed and nobody yeah. it. <laughs> But it turned out he, he was actually the guy who was saying, there, there's nothing wrong. And he said, yes. well, I'm under 40. It doesn't hit me at all. And I said, and you understand people under 40 are dying too, not at the same numbers. But like this thing is, it's not what you're being told. And he just refused to believe it. And to this day, actually, still, he's still in the middle of the shit. We have people we know have caught it. Oh um, shit! People who've had it bad. I, I mean, yeah, a lot of people in my kids' class, parents and kids, have caught it. In our building, have caught it. Um, well, thank and, God you got out when you did. Yeah, it's a nightmare. I mean, you know, it's a packed. Uh, like the elevator is all I thought about. Yeah, and like I had pneumonia about a year and a half ago. My kid had croup um, a year ago. He had croup several times, but it was so bad. When you see your little kid gasping for air and turning blue mm. in front of you. Yeah. And he has this problem, you know, he's had this problem. I don't know what the hell it means. And we had to get an ambulance to come and give him um, steroids. And I'm just not going to take that, that chance. And they, I mean, they still don't understand what this thing is, except that it was grown by uh, the Chinese Communist Party in a Wuhan lab. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but beyond that, they still don't understand it. Or, well, we've, or, got, we've got dueling tales because maybe it came from Fort Detrick. That's, that's the true. other one. I like that one. <laughs> I know. Well, the one thing we're sort of missing in that square of theories then, because we've got the wet lab, or excuse me, we've got the wet market in China, we've got the lab in America, we've got the lab in China. We need to sort of develop a theory where mm. it came from a wet market in America. <laughs> right. And then we'll sort of have total symmetry, which is all, yeah. always what I'm looking for. Right, That'll right. perfect the new Cold War that we're entering <laughs> with China. I know. Yeah, the whole, the Russia one was. Well, with everything with liberals is always kind of a squishier version of something worse to come. Like they kind of pave the way and then they get paved over, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, the, the whole the Russia gate hysteria of the last few years is, it seems to me, it's just, uh, just uh, um, uh, kid stuff compared to what the China Cold War thing is, but you know it's gonna it be is kind of insane. funny because yeah. i was think i was thinking about it today because i was watching trump's press conference for like the first time in a while and i was wondering about that and i was like man you just they really just dropped the whole russia gate thing yeah I know. It, it's it, just like it I, I was like well man remember when they impeached him like two months ago or whatever what happened there yeah while while everyone was supposed to be focused on retroactively you know why weren't you paying attention to what was happening in wuhan why weren't you paying attention oh yeah you were trying to impeach him over the one thing that was the stupidest thing of all to impeach him yeah, that out, had out of like, a list of like a hundred things you could have impeached him for i mean you don't hear a word one about that no. anymore i mean which is i mean it's it's kind of spectacular but it is it's, 
uh, yeah, it's really I, fucked up because mm. I I'm I've seen people in the Trump world from my old building talking about the fake news thing and you know anytime you try to bring up something about what Trump's doing and they say oh it's fake news fake news but like what do you say about the fact that for three years all of the respectable media was pushing fake a big fake news story <laughs> that even they dropped and yeah sort of I like, mean you know that's it like Rachel Maddow just like rebuilt her career on it yeah. And like, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I, I was like really following all the Russiagate stuff that you got, you know, you and, and Yasha and other people were really following it closely and really, I mean, you know, Blumenthal and other people trying to be like, everyone stop. This is crazy. This, you know, is getting out of hand, like from even before Trump's election, it started like yeah. kind of ginning up with Hillary a little bit. Yeah, which I'm. I mean, you know, I always assumed was about like serious stuff, to be honest. But um, but then it just like reached this fever pitch, and it's like people forget. I think maybe we mentioned on the podcast before, but it's like remember when Morgan Freeman did like a YouTube ad saying we yes. were at war with Russia. <laughs> yes, I mean there it's just so like totally nuts. Moments. And like you know Google the, yeah. was blacklisting websites. Like naked capitalism was like taken yeah, off yeah. of Google. Anyone yeah. that was critical. And it kept going through the midterms, like literally up until just a couple months ago. And now it's just, no. I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone has even talked about Putin in months, yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. why we have you on. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Let's get it going again. Let's restart Russiagate now. Yes. I mean, that should be the whole, that should be the motive here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm like the only American journalist who had his newspaper shut down by the Kremlin and who had to flee the country when one of his little, you know, the, the former head of Nashi, which was the pro-Kremlin sort of youth goon squad, uh, yes. was threatening me and all this stuff. I mean, I'm the only American who actually had to flee Russia, journalist, and had his newspaper shut down, was charged with extremism, which is terrorism, basically, as well as other offenses like corrupting the youth and promoting drug use and very and sick shit and stuff really <laughs> sick shit yeah um and and here here in the middle of russia like 10 years later in the middle of russia again i'm being accused by all of these hacks happened many times of being an fsb shell a putin shell um a traitor uh, a red brown nazi like everything under the book i mean the kremlin was at least pretty straight up like you're doing stuff we don't like, fuck you, we're shutting you down. Like, they yes. didn't kind of come up with a whole bunch of smoke and mirrors about this and that. It's just like, we don't like you, go. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we finally found you. You know, you were on the margin of things. We finally found you, boom, go. Um, and they're a little bit more straightforward about it. But the hysteria here, it's really weird. I mean, and people whip themselves up into a frenzy and believe it. It's a weird thing about American culture, man. It's, it's kind of scary. People, that, that kind of... Uh, dark psychotic mob mentality that desire to just find i don't know enemies and burn them it's it's really deep in this culture well i mean it, it's it's like you know it's really part of our fabric and it's not like we're the only cult culture that like rooted out people and and you know talking about the spanish inquisition uh, yeah. you know whatever but like i mean the salem witch trials mccarthyism it's like it, it's a pretty big part of our history, and it's uh, yeah. it and it works. That's the thing, though. Like it works. You sort of gin up, like I, I you know, as as I, obviously I'm not breaking any ground here with this, but like 
prior post you know cold war there wasn't like a communist anymore and only so many people are muslim you can't really accuse someone i mean you can in a way they accuse obama i guess of being a muslim but like i can't like <laughs> accuse like you of being a muslim or something and so you got to fi- figure something else Obama, out. But yeah. Of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but like with Bernie, they, uh, you know, yeah. they, they, they busted that out uh, like just three months ago where, where a government official from Trump's government told yeah. Bernie Sanders that the Kremlin was supporting him in some way, which is, was pretty undefined how yeah. that was. And then a whole rash of articles came out uh, with just every single kind of like intelligence think tank scumbag being like, yeah, we've noticed a uh, 20% uptick in pro Sanders uh, yeah. RT articles lately, which is like, yeah. I mean, come, yeah, no quantify it. I know it's like, you know, here's some actual data to prove our insanity. And like, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. like graphs and shit. And they're saying, oh, the bots are really active at this time. Yeah, and so we yeah. know that the Russians are behind it. Well, that, that's actually just in that article. Yeah. He's like, wait, well, really? Yeah, you said uh, this guy Clint Watts. Oh, that who is guy, a, yeah. Of course, an ex uh, army, I believe, intelligence officer. And FBI uh, guy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, my source of news uh, when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> going on with the left. Uh, yeah, he said it was all information in this article, this NPR article from Clint Watts. There's literally no other sources in it. Mm. And it just showed, all it showed was that some Bernie Sanders stories uh, appeared in RT that made him look good. There's no other. Like facts, there's no statistics. They don't show exactly like what happened. You know, he doesn't quantify it really in like in any real way. He just said like, yeah, RT is is going pretty soft on Bernie, and it's a it's an, a headline on NPR. Yeah, and you know, you multiply that by a million, and that's like that's how you, you guys get a don't narrative. live in New York. I don't know if you had this in San Francisco, but in New York here we have this guy kind of. Uh, um, I guess he's he's sort of a fixture here in the in the New York liberal radio media world. Brian Lair, uh, was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy. You know he's, and you know he's like, he was okay. I mean, for what he was, he was always sort of okay. I mean, he's squishy and all that stuff, but but kind of okay. And then he bit the the Russia Gate thing harder than you know he was like Maddow level, but in that kind of you know NPR voice, do you think <laughs> that really kind of NPR voice? And so. Uh, um, and I had to listen to him all the time, and this guy pushed it. You know, they, they'd sort of say every day, without us, we're all going to be in Hitler's Germany, so please give money to NPR, you know, and, and fight fake news. Now, uh, we're bringing on, you know, Susan Glasser, one of the New Yorker hacks who is also pushing Russiagate. Yes. And, you know, Susan, tell us, is it true that, you know, Trump is related to somebody who's related to somebody who's related to a Russian who once, you know, drove past the Kremlin. She's like, oh, yes, it's really true. And he's like, you see, this is, you know, how can we have this every day, every day? And then all of a sudden, one day, the Mueller report came out and said it was bunk. And he just dropped, like you said, he just dropped it. He just dropped it. And I thought, all your listeners have been listening to you and getting worked up into a frothing frenzy to the extent that NPR listeners do. But, what you know, yes. every day for two and a half years, and then you just... You just drop it. And like, how does that, okay, if you're not going to, if you're not going to directly sort of address that and talk to your listeners and say, here's what we did right and here's what we did wrong, here's what we can learn or anything, you're just going to drop it, which they all did in unison. How do you think that's going to kind of subconsciously affect them, first of all, and, and their trust? I mean, they may, you know, when you're in a cult, mm-hmm. you don't want to be you want to believe it even when it's 
disproven and absolutely you want to believe it harder yeah but but over time when you notice it's not being talked about anymore it does something to your belief yeah no matter what it does and certainly in the other cult the counter you know the 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 opposition cult looks at it and says well now we know we were right and we'll never have to believe you and so now they can go with conviction you know, out to a, um, a rally in Lansing or wherever, you know, uh, and say that the whole COVID-19 thing is a Bill Gates, Soros, uh, China conspiracy. And if you say otherwise, well, you're the guys that were pimping Russiagate for three years. Yeah. Why should we trust you anymore? And it's, it's like a, a it's like a total similar thing, too, because with the roll up, or roll up whatever, into, you know, uh, COVID-19, it was like, okay, first the media was like, oh, no, because Republicans are paying attention to this. It's not serious. And you had all these Vox articles being like, oh, actually, it's totally fine, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone talks about, you know, it's like our mayor telling people to go out and hang out, you know, in Chinatown or whatever. Yep. Even though people are coming back from Lunar New Year, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're exactly right. And yeah, then they're like, you know, again, it's like what you were saying. It's like, well, oh, you can't get it from kids or, oh, actually, you don't need tests or, oh, now actually you do need tests. And, oh, now you yeah. can get it from kids. And it's like all Masks. it does. The mask thing was the most. The mask is so yeah. insane. But yeah. like all it does is you're right. Is it sub, you know, even if you don't realize it and you aren't yet polarized in that way, because, you know, not even talking about the already, you know, Trump people or whatever. It's like, it eats at you. And Mm -hmm. how do you not walk away with that being like, why do we trust experts or why do we trust the media? Mm -hmm. It's an impossible situation. I mean, it's dangerous. That's one thing a lot of Trump people sort of have over a lot of people on the left is just like, not only an implicit distrust of the media, obviously there are certain outlets which they trust very much, you know, OAN, uh, Fox or whatever, but for everybody else, they don't trust a lot more. Then, then, and you see, you know, I think left wingers have sort of this implicit trust because they'll read an article. The article will have, uh, you know, a quote from a scientist, and a scientist would never lie in a major newspaper about anything that would ever affect you. Um, but I think what what COVID has shown us is that like it's all bullshit. The the CDC was saying you don't need to wear masks. Yeah, you know, I know. it's it's which was counterintuitive, and so and because I mean, like, what's the worst that would happen if you wear a mask? But it does. At the very least, it, it will help protect other people somewhat. At the very least, it might even help protect you somewhat. It, it was counterintuitive, and it's hard not to think in your mind while well, they were saying that because we didn't have any masks. And they yeah, were, right, right, you know, right. I mean, that's the same thing. What, you know, that's really what Cuomo and de Blasio were doing. They were rationalizing shit policy backwards. Well, we, I can't actually close down schools yet because my donors don't want to fucking have their kids at their home. And I can tell you, it's a shit, it's a serious pain in the ass having your kids at home. People are fighting, screaming like you've never imagined before. You're shoving your kid. I'm, I like drag my kid and shove his face in front of Blippy. And like, you know, and he's like addicted to Blippy now. I don't know if you know who Blippy is. No, I, I'm this not is familiar. Like, this is one, you know, in the horror movies about pandemics. They didn't tell you Blippy would become like, you know, front and center. Blippy's like this, this dude who's a YouTube clown. Mm. And somehow we stumbled across it. And my kid immediately took to it, and I was like, okay, something's not right with this. And I looked it up, and it turns out Blippi's a huge YouTube star, but, but before that, 
<laughs> he was a gross-out comedy guy or trying to make it yes. as a gross-out <laughs> comedy guy and never quite got there. And, and um, uh, YouTube videos sort of surfaced or somebody leaked to it of, of him like having people take a shit on him. So this is like <laughs> Blippi's into... <laughs> Classic clown-like behavior. Yeah. <laughs> so my kid's watching this guy and, and there's actually a whole... My kid's favorite episode, I'm sorry to say this, is the chocolate episode. How's ah, chocolate made? Yes. And my wife's like, I can't do this. I can't have my kid watch it knowing that blippy had people take shits on him you know um and how does this relate to uh i don't know it's just unintended before we keep going we were supposed to do a show together Mm -hmm. let's just say i'm one even though it didn't happen unfortunately i mean I knew you guys individually, but I didn't know. I, I kind of like vaguely knew about your podcast. Like most of my mind is a vague soup these days. Me too. But now that I focused on it and I, I love, I love you guys show and I uh. love your feed. I mean, you guys are doing it right. You guys are on the way to getting a cult started and that's the future, man. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's really the future. No, well, we are, we are, are delighted to have, right. uh, to have one half of the war nerd podcast, one half of, or not one. I don't know how many of you motherfuckers there were, but a guy who used to be an editor at the exiled. Uh, yeah. I don't know what else, what else do you do? Your dad? Not much. Dad, man, dad is like yeah, classic way job. harder than anything. Yeah. Way harder. Trying to get out of it. Um, yeah, I was reading a quote. I was reading a quote about uh, you earlier from a, a woman named Jean McKenzie, who said Mark Ames should move to New York and live under a bridge. Uh, and I'm delighted I'm, to I'm be almost there. Yeah, I was going to say I'm delighted to be speaking to you. You're not under a bridge. You appear to be in some sort of building. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and I got out. Yeah. Um, Jean, I remember Jean. She. Um, she so she was a Moscow Times correspondent. The Moscow Times was, um, it was like the uh, you know if neoliberalism in in the nineties was, I mean it was very different than than the two thousands and now. It was um, a religion. I don't, it was a faith. I mean it yeah. was a very it was a faith that was so so fundamentally held that you didn't even for most people even questioned that it had some kind of basis. It was just, it was like a law of an act of nature. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and she was, she was, I don't know. I, I, she was either meant to be a provocation or I, I don't know what her deal was, but she, she was actually not a bad journalist. I'll give her that. Um, but for some reason she decided to be a columnist instead. And every column she would scold Russians for being not American enough. Every mm. single column. Mm. Can you believe how dumb Russians are? They, you know, Americans would do it this way, but Russians do it that way. It was like every single time, and it just got more and more grating. So, so yeah, being man boys, we made fun of her. <laughs> she was upset. Yeah. <laughs> Can you do? We I'm sorry. To, yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> to say it looks like I looked her up, and she has apparently been beheaded. So <laughs> we're all good. <laughs> Uh, near somewhere called Dara I have nothing to do with it, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've been in a country. I mean, you lived in Russia. When did you move to Russia? So I don't have the I exact moved, date in front of me. Yeah, I moved there in um, late 1993, just before Yeltsin bombed and burned his parliament. Oh, we were just ground. talking about that. Yeah, Classic yeah, yeah. move. I actually moved, I mean, the, the first place I lived in right at that time was an apartment. I mean, it was right behind what was, it's called the White House, the Parliament. Now it's a government administrative building, but it's a 
large, late, late Soviet, very solid granite, you know, building, and that's where the parliament was. And it was called the Bieli Dom, the White House. It's actually where Yeltsin famously, when they had their 1991 revolution against the Putsch, the Gekachipa, uh, 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 and then Yeltsin sort of brought the Democrats in and they overthrew that, that Putsch. Um, that was st also standing in front of the White House because that's where the Russian SSR parliament and government was, was situated. So he sort of, you know, stood up for democracy there. And then two years later, he brought the tanks and helicopters in and bombed it to the ground, uh, you know, and set it on fire with full backing from the U.S. Not backing, I would say, looking back at the record, prodding and pushing from uh, Clinton people and uh, Treasury people. And like cheering. I mean, like cheering, cheering it on. So the cheering came from, from the, the media. Western Press Corps. Yeah, yeah. David Remnick who at that time was a correspondent, <laughs> and then now he's... Uh, um, everyone's yeah. favorite. He's, he's is he still so at the bad. New Yorker? Is he oh, at Vanity yeah. Fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, editor he's New, New Yorker's editor. He ain't yeah. leaving there. Um, he's really writing those worst. Obama hagiographies. Yeah. That's where I knew him from. He wrote Lenin's Tomb. Yeah, he wrote Lenin's Tomb, which people say is good, but when you know too much about him, it's not No, good. I don't it's, read any... I, yeah. I, all these books, you go to the fucking bookstore, Barnes & Noble, whatever. I guess that doesn't exist anymore. Borders, whatever. <laughs> they always got like three books in the Soviet oh, Union. Yeah. That's one of them. And then there's like one in the Court of the Red Tsar or something, which, of course, <laughs> I'm also never going to read. <laughs> uh, let, let me see his next... So Remnick, let me just give you a couple things he said. I mean, since we're on the subject of Remnick, because he also had another book that had some shocking... It was, it was like, uh, he put out a book. I guess they don't... Uh, here we go. Hold oh, on he, one second. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Bridge, Life and Rise of Barack Obama. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. And of course, he did his Muhammad Ali book, A Resurrection. So his Resurrection, The Struggle for a New Russia. That came out in 97, a year before the collapse, where he said, democracy is firmly ingrained now forever. And d despite Yeltsin's, you know, warts and all, um, Russia is never going back and it's forever yeah. going to be a pro-Western country. And, and then he was like, whoops. And you can take it from me. I'm David Remnick and I approve of this message. Yeah. <laughs> but in, 90, in 1993, he went on Charlie Rose and said, and you, I've actually found it so you can watch it, where he said you can't, he defended bombing the parliament and said you can't, uh, can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. I mean, he actually used that. Oh my God. Word. I mean, people I, yeah. died. Yeah. Oh yeah. Probably yeah, like about a thousand a people. Oh, whoa. I thought yeah, it was the official hundreds, death toll was a few hundred, but um, it was there, probably... I, I think there were some thousand. Americans, too. Yeah, I there mean, were, like, yeah. There were. That, woof. It's N uh, nice it's guy, though. Dark. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, um, but that's how people were then. It was, it was always um, Yeltsin or, or Red Brown. You know, you, you hear this, uh, these, like, liberals talking about Red Brown Alliance. Red brown then, red brown bashing or red brown shaming or whatever was used to allow Yeltsin to bomb his parliament, burn it right. to the ground. I mean, it's the first time a parliament had been set on fire since the Reichstag fire in 1933. But we fully backed it, and literally, like two days after he set his parliament on fire and then um, and, and uh, imposed um, Komandansky Chas. Um, I don't even know why I'm forgetting this. Uh, uh, martial law and all this kind of shit. I mean, I was there, and you know, curfews and martial law in, in Moscow. So you've been um, under curfew before. Yeah, and I, at that time, so the bombing happened, and then I immediately moved more towards the outskirts, actually towards where... Uh, I, but I was walking around that day. I was 
stupid, you know? I mean, how old are you? How old are you, uh, Brace? I'm 30. Okay, so you're just getting out of it, because I would say any 20-something male, okay, not any, I'm, I'm flattering myself. Me, 20-something male, was an incredibly stupid person. I, right? I, 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 I can't say yeah. I've gotten less stupid, but yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was walking around in the middle of the gun, uh, gun battle. I, I don't know how I didn't, something bad didn't happen. I just got lucky. Some did and some didn't. And, I mean, I was watching the tanks bomb, and then I'd walk around the back, and then I was, like, literally standing next to some Russian Amonsi or, um, or paramilitary guys like firing a gun and I was like oh wow cool looking I mean there were crowds of people like birds flocking around watching and I was with the birds and I it, it and I remember thinking at the time like oh if I die today this will be cool and um, I've had and that was, exact thought you know what I mean yes. yeah and it's a really I don't know if this happened to you at well you actually went to war so but I I've had that thought like, beyond that Okay, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, but like, it was sometime afterwards, I thought about it. What the fuck was I thinking? I mean, (laughs) but I, I, because I really meant it. And, um, you know, it's, it just, it kind of scared me and freaked me out. Like, because I I knew I really meant it. And I just happened to get lucky. There was a guy who was shot and killed, like, in the, um, there's an arm and hammer, you know, was that, uh, industrialist who did a lot of business with the early Soviets. The grandfather or father of Army Hammer. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and he, uh, they have a building there also right next to the White House called the World Trade Center. Uh, it's called the World Trade Center. <laughs> I mean, and I was hanging out there too for a while. I know. Wait, did Watching it get bombed? What, uh, well, it didn't, no. Oh. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and then right when I left, like two people were shot and one oh was paralyzed, God. one was killed. There. And just, it, it just, uh, it just weirded me out, but it wasn't the first, it wasn't the last time. You know, you just, I don't know, uh, you just do stupid things. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's like Russia at that time was a country that was being looted pretty openly. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I think it's one of the most, one of the more uh, famous instances of, of sort of mass looting of a, a country's properties and assets uh, being looted. But, I, you know, there are some, I'm not going to say perfect allegories to what's going on now, um, but, you know, there's curfew, you see a, a ton of just out in the open graft, it's, it's, I don't really even know where I'm going with this. But. No, I, I know where you're going, I mean, because... There's no, it, it's, it's not right to say the U.S. or pr- really any country is always been and always will be this flat, like it's yes. always exactly this way. There's no doubt, as far as I can tell, that it's worse now, certainly any time in my lifetime. I mean, the, the open corruption, it's corruption. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we can't use that word corruption about us because it only applies to official enemies or yeah, Brazilians. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but it's corruption on a scale, actually, that, that kind of does put them to shame. I mean, um, and, and the corruption in Russia was with our backing completely and our advice and so on and our participation. It was, for that time, it was off the scale. It was just a lot more open. I mean, I, I learned a lot about America by being there at that time because, the layers had been kind of stripped, the layers of bullshit about what goes on in society were were stripped off by all of the traumatic things that Russians went through from, let's say, the 1990 through 
the end of the 90s. And so you saw, I mean, that's why, not to brag, but I'll brag, but that's why Yasha and I were, it, it was so obvious to us in February of 2009 when that Tea Party, the very first Tea Party uh, protest, it was a smaller one. And we just looked at it, and I was supposed to write something for Playboy, and they were like, well, this just looks like a whole bunch of oligarch AstroTurf events in Russia. Like, this yeah, is what absolutely. they do, they fake protests. I mean, that one wound up exploding, but when we wrote about it as a billionaire AstroTurf thing, we were mocked widely as conspiracy theorists. I mean, now everyone is onto it, but we just saw it happen all the time in Russia. It was easier for us to see it. And I think people, it, it, it first took a while for Americans to kind of, I think for good liberal Americans to kind of accept the possibility that a lot of what went on was just manipulation by rich people, you know, just a bunch of theater and manipulation by rich people. It just, it, it was hard for them to accept that for a while. Now people accept it, but only think the other guys do it, not them. Yeah, you know, that's but, the thing. It's like, I, I don't even know, like when you say like, we can't say corruption out loud. It's like, we can't even say like what's going on out loud. It's like yeah. people won't say that, you know, a ton of members of Congress were just caught selling stocks right before this ma by a massive sell-off in the market because of the pandemic. Then they go out of session. Yeah. Then you've got the one of the biggest cash grabs in American history. I think the biggest with now the most powerful Treasury Secretary in American history, just picking and choosing who he gives money to. And what companies get what? I mean, you have massive consolidation. Like, you know, you, you we were talking about the media and all this problem with the media. It's like, you know, this is a big problem in Russia, too. It's like after Yeltsin, it was just, you know, a bunch of oligarchs coming in, consolidating media. You have no journalists left. Absolutely. And you're seeing that same kind of, you know, you never let a crisis go to waste, even if mm -hmm. you're manufacturing part of it, right? Mm -hmm. And you see these massive companies and these oligarchs, and we should be able to call Americans oligarchs. It's so insane that we can't use this vocabulary. <laughs> Just coming in and getting what they can, you know, until the dust settles, it feels like. I mean, what's weird is the 2008 bailout seems so much more so much less corrupt now by comparison. Yeah. Seems so, you know, that's when you know things are really fucked I up. I know. Like, like the 2008 bailout, there was some talk and there was some pushback and there, there was, this time just everybody's just sitting in their homes. Everyone's just <clears> frozen. <throat> frozen, yeah. <clears throat> and as you said, like um, the whole thing is just, it's completely fucked up. I mean, I remember that night when it came out that some of these senators had banked a bunch of money basically publicly saying everything is fine with COVID-19. They got these intelligence yep. reports. And I mean, it's so naked. And if this happened in Russia, it would be front page news, right? Or if it happened in China, some equivalent, it, they don't have the system that would be equivalent enough, but it would be front page news as proof that our enemies are bad and we should be grateful for the leadership and the system we have. But it happened here, and everyone's like, oh, this is really going to result in something. I'm just like, no, it won't. It never, that, you, that's the thing. It doesn't. It yeah. never does. It doesn't. Like, it and never does. And that's also does. kind of new. I mean, you know, even think... It does I, feel I, new. It is. It, it, even in the first Bush term, W. Bush, I mean, even that dipshit, the first term, some Enron guys went to jail, some mm, WorldCom mm -hmm. guys, you know, who were even his own uh, major sponsors. Um, Worldcom guy went to it's like CEOs went to jail, and he fixed it. I mean, they got rid of that first 
SEC, DOJ. They got right. rid of these people and put in people to make sure no one went to jail anymore. And they didn't go to jail. They just got bailouts. Um, but it's kind of weird to think that there was more accountability the last time we had any kind of corporate accountability was George W. Bush. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, it is well, it just, really terrifying. It seems yeah. like we've crossed some Rubicon, and obviously, yeah. like, you know, you know, this country is started for and run by and, and at the in the interests of the rich since it began. But, like, it just seems like now it's almost like there's just no hope of doing anything about it. Like, there's this sort of nihilism when we talk about these things. Very like, of course, nihilism. Kelly Loeffler's not going to get in trouble. Maybe yeah. she won't get reelected, but, like, she's, I mean, she's not going to get in any trouble in yeah. any meaningful sense. Um, and, like, you know, whoever can pardon whoever, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, and again, every president does that. Like, it just doesn't matter. There's no yeah. way for anyone to get into tr any, any, to any trouble. And that's, I think, what sort of, like, drives so many people so crazy is because they see all these just, like, very nakedly corrupt things happen mm -hmm. while they're being lied to very openly, and then that those sort of lies disappear and are replaced with other lies. And I think it just, like, it, it, I mean, the, the American brain, I, I don't want to be someone who's talking about particular nations' brains or anything <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> I will say, I think the American brain is specifically psychotic yes. because of these things. <laughs> Psychos. I, I agree. I mean, it's crazy, scary, dumb psychos. I don't know. I mean, what else can you say? It's, uh, I think you can talk bad about your own family, you know? <laughs> so you yeah, that's a nice way to put families. it. That's yeah. a better way to put it, I guess. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's a bad time. I mean, getting back to, to Russia, you know, I mean, look, one thing, if you watched Russia um, in the 90s, I mean, I remember we, so we had, most of the people who wrote for us were pretty, like, wildly dissident in one way or another, um, Russian or American. Um, and one guy we had writing for us, Matthew Malley, he was, um, like, a Soviet emigre to America, taught at Smith College or whatever, and was, like, a real true believer liberal. Went back with the USAID programs, because there were a lot of USAID programs in Russia. I mean, it, the, Russia was a mission in the 90s. Mm. And the mission was to Americanize Russia. Uh, and and this, this is real. I mean, I know there's a lot of cynicism to it, and there is, because, because underneath it all, there was a lot of looting and plundering and a very deliberate attempt to weaken the country and, you know, and, and so on. But there was also a genuine, like, Victorian Protestant, whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, mission to, to Americanize the place. And... Um, and Matthew went with that as a believer, as somebody who was anti-Soviet. And he started having like a series of um, disillusioning, very deeply disillusioning, uh, you know, experiences there. And then he started writing about his disillusionment with the liberals, um, which would be, I think, in our spectrum. I mean, Russian liberals are something more like, well, they're neoliberals, right? And yeah. they're kind of, but, but, they're, but they're more kind of openly right-wing about some social thing. More like libertarian, I guess. Like more openly Islamophobic and, and anti-immigrant and some of the like anti-politically correct, what we call politico politically correct things, but liberal socially about, I don't know, weed or, you know, sexual, yeah. mm. some other sexual Broad's thing. working. Yeah. So. <laughs> but anyway, but one of the, one of his one of the things that just kind of disillusioned him most deeply, I think, was the fact that under Yeltsin, under sort of neoliberal rule, 
as he said, there was no accountability at all anymore. And he said, you know, in the Soviet days, there was accountability. In fact, everyone was always scared of being uh, wrong or being Famously, blamed. there was accountability. <laughs> yes, famously, yes. I mean, that's the Stalin time, but I mean, even in kind of the Brezhnev and post-Brezhnev period, yeah. you know, you had, like, you had, um, Zek, you had people um, who were responsible for each apartment block. Yeah. And making sure that, you know, the bills were paid, but also that the hot water ran. And, and if they did something wrong, then you can tell on their superior and so on. Like, there were always people who were accountable. And there was just, it was out the door completely. And that was a great thing if you were, um, you know, a male 22-year-old protagonist in a sci-fi novel. <laughs> and, there were, and those guys became oligarchs or they died. Um, but some of them made out well. And, um, you know, I, so, but the lack of accountability is something I think that is very similar. Um, you know, the first thing I saw after I got kicked out of Russia was the, was the bank bailout. And it was so, I mean, the, the 2008 bailout. And it was like, it was the most nakedly corrupt thing, most nakedly oligarchical thing I'd seen since the Yeltsin years. It just blew my mind. Um, and no one, no one was, you know, held accountable for it. I mean, that's, and that's a, it is a fairly new thing. And I think, you know, what elites realize there and what they realize in this country is, wait a minute, if we are a class and we're in the, you know, we sort of like control the, the good spots in the media, which, which sort of controls opinion to a certain degree, uh -huh. to a large degree, and we're in the political class and we're in the sort of, you know, in the business and banking class, and we fuck up, who says we have to be accountable? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why? Why not just fuck up and stay there? Why not be wrong about Iraq war and still keep my job? Like, why should I give it up to somebody who was right? Why should we actually punish the guy who was right? Like, what law of nature says so? I mean, this, and this is a very Yeltsin Russia 90s level of nihilism that, that is happening here. But, um, one thing I would say that's very, that is different, like if you think about, if you think about America in terms of, well, is America on its way to collapsing? I mean, I, I, mean, I don't want to get that so. crazy. No, no, I no. Know. So I don't think it's like Soviet Union, like, because. I think people almost like pray for that, which yes. also speaks to the nihilism. It's like, yes. they don't even realize that they're taking, that they're like feeding into that. It's the same strain of nihilism, right? Because yeah. it's kind of like. One river with lots of tributaries, maybe. Well, totally. I can't but, really blame anyone for being like elated at the prospect, even oh, yeah. if it's like in a weird dark. No, world. I know. Absolutely. I don't mean that, but I just mean like I, I think it's like a false like uh, false hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I think yeah, uh, first I of all, it. I think these you know things can go on a lot longer than you yes. think they can, yes. <laughs> and things can always get a lot worse than you think yes. they can. But the worse, I do, the worser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. But. Yeah, I do think that it kind of like stems from the same place or the same like kind of like dark, um, like no rules, something will happen. Or maybe it's even a hope that there'll just be like some quick fix, like and then yeah. we will all stop feeling so crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I think part of that is like I think people see sort of like the way our society is structured. And like you were saying how in the 90s, people took neoliberalism as like a force of nature as just a given. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people just see the way like things are structured now. Of course, of course, no one gets in trouble. Like, I mean, if yeah. I, I'm 30 years old and my whole life, 
I can't name one guy who's like the most guy who's gotten in trouble was Bill Clinton when he got his dick sucked. Like nobody else gets in trouble. Um, And it's, uh, which by the way, he should have gotten a lot worse trouble for different reasons. Mm. Um, But I I mean, it's like, it's almost like, I think in a lot of people's minds, it takes like a force of nature to displace this force of nature. Right. So Mm. like the only thing that could really affect things like, Oh, Bernie can't, whatever these social movements can't, which, you know, they ended up being correct on that. Uh, the only thing that can affect it is just like another insane force of nature that like we have no control on, like something else that we can't affect, which is Corona. And I, again, like, like you guys are saying, I think that's incorrect. I think we might, you know, fingers crossed, we might be seeing the beginning of some sort of collapse, but I, it's it, that wouldn't be for decades. I don't think. I think think we don't know. I think the thing that I like would, I, I totally get that impulse and I like, definitely go to those places for sure but i think it's like so dangerous to i guess and we've talked about this on the podcast before like it's so dangerous to hope that something you don't have control over will somehow do the work for you Mm. or something do you know what i mean because it's like giving up total control of the situation or not control but even like participation in what that future might look like which I mean, that is nihilism in a way, right? It's just like completely ceding any, um, any role in any of that. And, you know, then it's like, well, it'll just be, Be you know, it'll, maybe it'll be a collapse, but it'll be Bezos's, you know, management collapse for the next like 30 years or whatever it is. <laughs> well, you, you've lived through a collapse before, or like you've witnessed part of a collapse before. Yeah. I mean, there was, I've heard some, you know, dark things about what happened in Russia uh, after the fall mm. of the Soviet Union. So, you, I mean, what you're saying, from what I understand, it was pretty bad, basically, up until the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people wonder why Putin is, you know, generally, because it really was awful until he came to power. And you talk about people giving up all hope and hoping for some force to come in and mm-hmm. fix it. I mean, that was, that was Putin. Now, you know, Russia yeah. didn't have a long, um, I mean, it's a very different culture, very, yes. very different culture. And it's hard to grasp that. And I've very, only been to Ukraine, but it's, you know, okay. I feel like they somewhat related. They're very, they're very close, even though, you know, it's weird. They were in killing each other, but they're very, very similar from my yeah. experience in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but Russia is Russia is even more, you know, different in, in yes. a lot of ways. And um, I mean, you brought this up earlier too, but about the media, the media was, well, the media in, in Russia, like when I very first got there was insanely free. Um, it really was. Uh, they had the whole spectrum laid out in front of you. And even TV was pretty free. I mean, there was a real, it was an oligarch, a future oligarch and a really cynical bastard, Vladimir Gusinsky. Um, uh, who owned a TV channel called NTV, Independent Television Network, um, but was very critical of Yeltsin and stuff. And um, and then he bombed his white, he bombed his parliament and shut down all the opposition newspapers. And then they got going again, and they were still wild and free and muckraking. And then Yeltsin did the big privatization move, and starting in a big way in '96, and then uh, yeah, '95, '96. And they took over all the big newspapers, which still were very important. And like, news would be made by muckraking newspaper writers, and then go to TV or not to yeah. TV from there, and have an effect. And um, and when the oligarchs bought them out, they got turned largely into organs for oligarch interests. And 
people got sick of that really fast because their lives kept getting worse and worse. I mean, you know, the average Russian male life expectancy dropped from like 68 years to 56 years. Um, the Soviet economy, I think, was the third largest in the world towards the end, and Russia's economy at the end of the 90s was smaller than Peru's, I think. Mm. I mean, it was uh, some, close to a third of the country was living on subsistence farming to, subs to supplement their diet by the end of the 90s. Um, you had, you know, a million homeless children. Um, I mean, you could just go through every mark of the, yeah, the excess I read deaths. Like yeah, only yeah. like eighty six percent of the uh, the wealth was just literally only in Moscow. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. in that way, it's kind of like London. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, it was it was uh, it was an appalling disaster, and people were very ashamed. Russians were very ashamed of being Russian. You saw that a lot back then. You know, you get the na the the nationalism is always kind of a flip side of that, um, and, and you know maybe you'll see that here. I'm not sure, but. Uh, but, but one, one big difference in the collapse, and I think this is kind of instructive for people who are hoping it might just happen. I mean, it's always been kind of a mystery in a sense, hasn't it? Like, why did the Soviet Union collapse? Okay, we want to believe, well, because they all want to become Americans, you know, and the, the people rose up. Mm. I mean, Yeltsin's big rally against the, the, the putsch, the putsch was not popular at all, but there were something like 10,000 people on the street. It was a small rally by perestroika era and there yeah. was a lot of activism in the perestroika era by that time people were getting disillusioned by everything plus it was august so a lot of people were on vacation it wasn't a big people's uprising in fact you know uh, when the, when the uprising succeeded and the coup started falling apart this is in 1991 and the soviet union then was officially falling apart i don't know if you remember the, the first big like statue pull down of the soviet union was when they pulled down Jorginsky's statue Jorginsky, yes, right the head yeah. of the founder of the Cheka and Lubyansk Iron Square. Felix yeah you know who pulled it down I learned this from Paul Klebnikov's book he was the uh Forbes journalist who was assassinated in the mid-2000s um I didn't even know this because it's so little pop it's so little publicized in the west and then I looked for some backup and he's right but it was um, members of the organization Pamyat. I don't know if you know Pamyat. Pamyat was like the first big fascist organization. <laughs> um, they all wore all black and, you know, just railed against Jews. Yeah. And they were extremely anti-communist. Mm. And, yeah, and they were basically invented by the, the KGB, the, the, the directorate of the KGB, uh, feel, led by Felix Bobkov, who became the head of security for this oligarch I just told you about who headed the independent television station, Vladimir Gusinski. I'm sorry to say this, but Gusinski, you know, also was the head of the World Jewish Federation. And, you know, all these guys, they were just so profoundly cynical. Berezovsky, yeah. Jewish and anti-Semitism meant nothing to them. They were just chess pieces, you know, to play. And they would light up one, you know, you'd heat up one and cool off another, heat up the other, cool off one. It just... Just as to the KGB is what it meant to an oligarch, nothing, you know, yeah. at that time. And um, yeah, so, you know, the famous statue pulled down was by actual Nazis. And this is what we celebrate. <laughs> Nazis backed by the KGB. Amazing. Um, and yeah, isn't that, isn't that incredible? But um, my point is that the Soviet Union would not have fallen apart if, because in March of, of 91 of that same year, six months earlier, there was a vote. Gorbachev held a vote across the whole Soviet Union. Do you want to keep the Soviet Union together or not? 
I think only Georgia and maybe one or two of the Baltics wanted out. But overall, the vote was something like 73%. It was, a very, it was way more free and fair than any elections we have or the, any elections Yeltsin had. I mean, everybody, if you even look back, you know, how it was reported at the time, everybody agreed. In Ukraine, it was 90% keep the Soviet Union together. Mm-hmm. They wanted to keep it together. People were already getting sick of things falling apart. Um, it was the Soviet elite. Uh, this was the, the, the nomenclatura, they were really a very kind of decadent, elite, um, materially, relatively well-off class that yeah. knew that their country was rich and that they could and should be as well-off as Western counterparts because especially under Perestroika, they were allowed to go visit and see and they're ashamed, ashamed of their clothes, ashamed of the way they looked, ashamed of their cars. And they, di- they still to this day, liberals fucking hate communism in the Soviet Union because it shames them how shameful the, uh, the cars were and the clothes were and stuff like that. I mean, it's really kind of that gross. Yeah, it's like so embarrassing it's, to them. Yeah. But it's like it's, Gorbachev in the supermarket in Texas. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just having yeah. like a mental breakdown. <laughs> and, um, and so, and these guys were right. I mean, if they, you know, so they wrote on the back of a lot of popular, let's, it was much more democratic social. I mean, the, the democratic movements, the opposition movements were very kind of Northern European socialist. I mean, if you were to ask the ideal, in fact, they did poll it. Were very socialist. They were never like, we want shock therapy. We yeah. want shock yeah. therapy. There's never anything <laughs> it's, like it's that. It's not the nicest sounding term. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to like, I feel like um, Americans are woefully uneducated about actual American involvement, not just in shock therapy, but you brought up Yeltsin's like 96 election and what happened between basically like 96 and through to the economic crisis like i don't think americans really understand how involved like literally like hands-on we were in like the you know those years in russia and like really i mean the whole decade but really those years i mean it was like i i I feel like from my understanding is that it it was basically like harvard running economics programs like restructuring the entire political economy of russia well, real yeah. quick, for those who don't know what shock, what, do you want to give them a little brief explanation of what shock yeah, therapy was? Yeah, I can kind of give, I try to give even sort of the, the, the dark politics of shock therapy in a sense too. But um, uh, so, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and then Yeltsin had a chance to do something. And I think Yeltsin saw as a, as a kind of thick-headed but ambitious um, provincial Communist Party boss, for lack of a better word, who really hated his old Communist Party bosses, that these young English-speaking, Friedrich Hayek-reading economists who had counterparts in Harvard were proposing something, I mean, to the Russians... you know, to their defense or to whatever, they, they, they saw the angles on these things. They weren't just like, oh, wow, this is the future. It, yeah. it was like, what's the angle on this? Well, the angle is I can destroy, like, da-da-da-da-da. I can create society in this way, and my block will win out. My demographic will win out in, 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 when, uh, in, in the new order. So if you want to destroy your enemies um, who are, and, and, you know, Soviet life was very... 
people deeply believed in it. You know, the average person deeply believed in it and liked it. It was the elites, again, who hated it. It was still pretty popular, the ideas of it, right up to the end. And the New Order was not popular at all. It wasn't, um, except among English-speaking elites who spoke to the New York Times and the Washington Post Mm. and gave us our idea of what what Russians wanted. Um, But... um, so shock therapy was, Yeltsin was given, so the, the coup, uh, the Soviet officers tried to overthrow Gorbachev in August of 1991 and restore the Soviet Union. They were, they were total bumpkins who tried it, uh, total, failed almost immediately, like immediately started drinking themselves under the table one <laughs> Shot himself in the head. Like they, they were, yeah. It reminds un- one a lot of the Gulenist coup, where it's just like, <laughs> you guys have one jet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There are, there are theories because these guys were such bumbling idiots that they could have been. Of course. Yeah. There is a lot of that by a lot of people. Um, and it fell apart. And so the parliament, the one that Yeltsin wound up bombing two years later, because as all the US press said, these are fascist, communist, red brown. That parliament, which is the parliament that named Yeltsin as president um, through their system, then voted to give him emergency economic powers for a year from the end of 91 to the end of 92. And he could rule by like a dictator because it was an emergency period. And he put together this team uh, with Jeffrey Sachs, who's weirdly become good lately and he won't fucking fess up to what he did in Russia. <laughs> he blames everyone but himself. Mm. Um, and Sachs got together with these English-speaking elite uh, economists, and they devised shock therapy, which is basically... So Russia had this situation, actually, under Gorbachev. Towards the end, Gorbachev actually raised wages a lot, um, but people couldn't buy much. Um, there, there was, for a variety of reasons, both systemic and also crime and so on. There weren't a lot of goods. So people had pretty large savings. Um, People forget this. And and these were savings that were kind of collected over a couple generations in the banks. And there were a couple ways you could deal with that. One, and and even within the liberal world, there were a couple ways you can deal with it. And there was this plan um, by this one guy, Yavlinsky, who's still kind of around, which was well, we'll privatize apartments and small businesses first, and that way we'll kind of soak up all these excess rubles that are there that are kind of an overhang. Something has to be done about it. Um, and that way then everybody kind of becomes a small capitalist with a stake in a different order, and it's going to mm. be kind of social democratic, mixed yeah. market, mixed socialist, right? And Gorbach- that's the one Gorbachev wanted to do in 1991, but he needed IMF funding, he needed the U.S. and IMF to back them, and, and they refused. And I never, I, I kept hearing this from people in the international community for years afterwards, how angry they were that the U.S. set up the Soviets to fail, to fall, because that could have worked, but we obviously didn't want that. We didn't want it to work. No, we um, had to get in there. Yes, exactly. Um, and what, what Gaidar with Jeffrey Sachs and um, Andre Schleifer uh, mm-hmm. who was later indicted by the Department of Justice and uh, Larry Summers' protege, and these guys did, as they said... We love Larry here on True yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is you just actually free all the prices 
so that because all the prices were artificially kept down and you let you let not on commodities mind you and I'll t I'll explain that in a second but on consumer goods bread milk all this other eggs everything let prices free up and let the market set the prices and um you know Yeltsin promised they'd only double at most and everything would be stable within a couple months um, but what it really did, what the purpose of it was, was to wipe out everyone's savings, except for people very connected and in the know. Yeah. People didn't know it and didn't expect it. And so all of their savings were wiped out and you didn't have the ruble overhang. And politically, what you did is you disempowered. Yeah, you impoverished an entire people. And made them scared. You know, think about the bailout now, right? Yeah. We're all scared and you just had a massive transfer again from to, to the super wealthy, which is mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a transfer of power and wealth. Um, there it was sort of up for grabs, who's gonna be powerful? So you really needed to like steal tons and give it to a couple of people. And um, what they didn't actually um, free prices on like export goods, fertilizers and, ga and you know, oil and all these different things. And then the new Yeltsin regime decided who could have an export license. Mm. And that's how you started creating the first oligarchs. That's a and good way to make your friends get, rich. Right. So then you get to buy gas. Well, I, I realize gas is, or oil is now negative $40 to a barrel. <laughs> but back then, you know, it wasn't quite so cheap. But, you know, whatever you could, you'd sell it to, you had a license to buy it from the government uh, oil company at, let's say, a dollar a barrel, and then you'd sell it uh, to your offshore company, and then that offshore company would then sell it to somebody overseas for 20 bucks a, a barrel, and you just keep the profits, and then you plow some of that back into the people you have to bribe, mm -hmm. and then, you know, in setting up your power base and so on. And that, that's, that's how it worked. So everybody became poor, except a few well-connected people. And I mean, it's that was not shock therapy. totally dissimilar to kind of just the the general play. I mean, it, that was like a, I mean, they were basically using Russia as a test case for ideas they had just come up with, how quickly you could transfer someone into a free market, right? Yeah. But, you know, you do see that kind of consolidation, like you said, the consolidation coupled with the shock of everyone, like in 2008, losing your house, losing mm -hmm. your pension, losing your savings, or right now what's happening, a lot of people just lost their pensions, a lot of people lost their yeah. savings. Lost and their health care. Their jobs, their, yeah. everything. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, I mean, that's the, you know, the, yeah, the, you know, I guess that's Naomi Klein's like shock doctrine, but yeah. I mean, it really is true. It's like, it impoverishes the people while making a massive transfer into the hands of very few who then dole it out to, like you say, the people that then they'll have to owe you and you get this new little system set up. Mm-hmm. And the media the whole time just cheered it on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, a kind of a side story that, because uh, I went back about a year ago and started, or a couple of years ago, started looking through my old notes and going back through books, sort of the mainstream books. There weren't a lot at that time, but there were some, um, you know, and, and just some, some stories that kind of I missed at the time, like really stuck out rereading it. Like I was reading Klebnikov's book, um, Christia Freeland, who was a reporter for the Financial Times, who's now the Nazi granddaughter, um, you know, deputy yes. prime minister of Canada. Yes. <laughs> I, I just got some right. more info from our Canadian sources who <laughs> discovered that 
It's fucking nuts, I know. Um, and um, there's this one episode. So um, there's this guy, Boris Jordan. So Klebnikov also. Boris Jordan came from one of these white Russian families. Mm-hmm. He was a white Russian immigrant. And so a lot of these guys kind of came back. They were very anti-communist, were happy when it fell, very pro kind of Yeltsin, but then they kind of thought Yeltsin was too Jewish, uh, you know, and they wound up becoming more pro-Putin at some point or whatever. Anyway, um, Boris Jordan was like out of NYU, 25, 26 years old, um, but spoke great Russian. So he was hired by Credit Suisse First Boston uh, to, uh, and and the, the head of Credit Suisse First Boston, kind of this German or Swiss guy who, I think it probably done some work with corrupt KGB guys in like the very late 80s or early 90s and kind of understood that there was going to be privatization, things were going to go well. Um, Yeltsin, I told you he had emergency powers, economic powers for one year. So about a, a couple of weeks before those powers ran up, this would be in no, November of 92, with the help of Credit Suisse First Boston, Boris Jordan and some others, um, pushed through the first privatization plan, which was to privatize, because everything was owned by the state, to privatize industry. And it was this voucher program. It was another bit, uh, bait and switch program, which was like, well, um, everybody gets a voucher that's worth 10 bucks or something. And really, they were all made worthless very quickly. And it was just a way to provide cover for insiders to steal yeah. their own companies. Um, and Yeltsin made sure this was pushed through with with some American USAID and CSFB's help just before Parliament reconvened. When Parliament reconvened, they said, this has to stop. And that's when Yeltsin said, no, this is going to go on and I want more emergency powers. And they said no. And then Yeltsin said, well, I'm going to bomb you and burn you to the ground. And then the American press said, yes, bomb them and burn them to the ground yes. they, because they're Yeltsin saves fascists. democracy. Yes, exactly. But anyway, it was, it was, it was a fucking... It was a complete nightmare. And yeah, the Americans were involved in it the whole way. I mean, it wasn't just that Americans, there were American advisors running um, Yeltsin's presidential campaign in 96, and they were, and advising him on how to co-opt the fact that he could take over the entire media. I mean, the opposition oligarch um, was hired, his top guy was hired, the opposition media oligarch, Gusinski, was brought into Yeltsin's camp by hiring his top man at, at this television station to, to be the top campaign manager. Mm-hmm. And the Americans sent out memos like, wait a minute, you've got control of the entire media. Use <laughs> it. S- basically create fake news, you know, yeah. do disinformation do what will be accused in 15 years of Russian disinformation. Like, and that's what they did. They, they bombarded uh, the, the Russian population with propaganda that if Yeltsin were to lose, they would all be in death camps. Um, mm. And uh, the Americans were writing memos at that time. These were Americans who worked with Dick Morris, um, had, had been in business with Dick Morris a long time. That was Clinton's uh, strategist, right? Um, and they were writing at the time, like, you know, we're doing these focus groups and it's kind of amazing. These, these Russians in the focus groups, they, don't, they didn't trust Soviet news because they knew the angles on it. But they're so wowed by the technology of, of the news yes. propaganda that they believe it much more than, I mean, even Americans believe their propaganda. And so they were really excited at the possibilities of this. Um, 
But it was also, you know, loans. I mean, loans came in. Tens of billions of dollars of loans were handed to Yeltsin, even as he was creating this oligarchy, again, with uh, U.S. advice. And, like, um, like, I mean, suitcases of cash, too, mm-hmm. right? Like, just, like, straight up just cash. <laughs> to be fair, that is a fairly, uh, I don't know, just an easy way to transport money. I really that. <clears throat> no, but I, I would go further. It was 747s full of cash. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. This was the year that the $100 bill was changed. And um, uh, there were a lot of articles. I mean, and I think there's a lot to it. That it's, again, Russia as a mission, as, a, as the center of even debate between Republicans and Democrats and everybody. Like the transformation of Russia was the number one mission. And Yeltsin had about a 3% um, popularity rating going into the 1996 election. And the goal was not to get Yeltsin to win because that was going to happen. Yeltsin openly said, I'm not going to give up this seat. I'm not going to lose. So the question is how you deal with this to the communist opposition guy who was the perfect foil. He's like the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, like the he guy was born to lose. You anti-charisma. Know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anti-Zuganov? No, he's there to lose. Uh, yeah. Zuganov. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, uh, so, yeah. So, no, but, so we came out with the new $100 bill and there were reports. And in fact, the embassy, I think Matt Taby, my former partner, did, did one of the follow-ups on this with a Russian reporter because there was so much evidence, and the embassy admitted, yeah, there was a 747 that did, that was bringing cash, and we would park it here in the embassy, but we promised, swear to God, hope to die, across, you know, cross and stick a needle in my eye. None of that money went to the Yeltsin people, <laughs> but what did happen was, um, you know, there were factions within the, uh, within the Yeltsin camp, uh, kind of wrongly called the hardliners versus the pro-Westerners, but they played up to some degree that, so let's just call them that, the hardliners versus... Uh, um, I mean, it's bullshit, but let's just call them that. And the pro-Westerners were caught by the hardliners. Pro-Westerners were caught carrying suitcases full of cash out of, um, out of the government building that Yeltsin had previously <laughs> bombed. And they caught them and arrested them because it was illegal. You're not allowed to walk around Moscow with suitcases with half a million dollars in brand new, just shipped in, $100 bills. And um, <laughs> so... So they were caught with that, and these were the guys who were actually running the campaign for Yeltsin, and, uh, and they, with our backing, convinced Yeltsin to turn it all around and say the hardliners are trying to stage a coup, and uh, we have to back the, you know, the, these guys who were caught with the suitcases. <laughs> this really happened. And in fact, the guys who were caught with the suitcases went to the Radisson Hotel in Moscow that day and spoke English to the English-speaking reporters and told them what happened, and the reporters clapped and cheered for them. Jesus. I mean, it was really that gross, yeah. And, uh, and they wound up winning, um, winning out. One of them, this guy, Anatoly Chubias, um, you know, he later admitted when everything collapsed in 1998, he said uh, about the Westerners, Muy kinali, it means we, we, we screwed them. We rat-fucked them. You know, <laughs> yeah. we, we took all their cash, uh, and, and we did it. Like, they played the angles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Clinton couldn't lose, so he had to. No, exactly. Like, he, he basically had lose. to pay everything off because he couldn't, I mean, he, yeah, because that was his election year, right? Yeah. Yep, that was his election year. <clears throat> the corruption was starting to become an issue, but the question was, you know, he was being, he was being um, uh, rightly criticized, but mostly by Republicans, and then by some people who were sort of 
just level-headed. And people like Stephen Cohen, who's yeah. you know later mm-hmm. denounces a red brown, of course, because he didn't go along with the consensus. Um, for placing all their eggs in the Yeltsin, it's like you shouldn't personalize this. You should be for Russia's future. But actually, they were for Yeltsin because Yeltsin was the perfect leader of a large former enemy. It's what you want. Hundred percent. You want somebody who's drunk, stupid, feckless, and who you know. You just you want somebody weak like that. Yeah, of course. totally. Of course, they didn't like uh, they didn't like Putin. Putin was sober. That was his first problem. <laughs> From our point of view, he didn't drink. It's like, well, what the fuck can we do to this guy? You know. It always um, seemed to me that Yeltsin was always like in a little awe of Putin. After that, like he gets trotted out to like criticize him sometimes, but like, or he got trotted out to. Criticize oh, him I wouldn't sometimes. say he was. He might have been in awe, but it was more like so in ninety. So ninety eight was the collapse, and after the collapse, you know, there were a lot of pent up forces. I mean, we forgot in nineteen ninety three in the bombing of of the parliament because. Because, hey, you can't make an omelet, you know, as Remnick said. But a lot of Russians didn't, and they didn't forget all the other transgressions. And they started, Yeltsin did genuinely lose power after that crash. He lost a lot of power and didn't know how to get that power back. And so he had to share power with with a kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It was somewhere between, like, post-Soviet establishment that wasn't in on the big corruption and partly what would become Putin's people, I guess. Yeah. And they started going after the oligarchs and they started um, getting really close to the Yeltsin family and like, I mean, some real big bribery, just incredible stuff that used to come out in the Russian media. Bribery scandals, offshore scandals that were all the, the Yeltsin family was involved in and Yeltsin understood he was about to go to jail. Mm-hmm. And he needed something big uh, to save his own personal ass. He didn't care about democracy. He didn't care about anything anymore. Just how do I save my ass because I'm old, I might die, and my daughter's ass, and you know, <clears throat> and 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 the few people around him. And so he finally he waited until the until we started bombing Kosovo. Pretended like he really cared about Serbia, and then <laughs> behind the scenes said, "Okay, look." I got a problem, which is my opposition. I need to do some dirty shit. You got your war going on. I'll stop criticizing you and let you take, take Yugoslavia. You just shut up and let me do what I got to do. And that was the deal. And so then he, so he fired the, the prime minister at the time, Primakov, put in this guy, Stepashin, who was also an FSB, KGB guy. Um, and then they, he, Yeltsin's, the Yeltsin family, the families they called it, and Berezovsky and stuff, they... They worked with their buddies in, in Chechnya to start a war. And uh, Stepashin, despite being, you know, no Boy Scout, was, mm-hmm. didn't have the, did not have the stomach for it. He really just literally didn't have, he was kind of talking himself up as the new Pinochet, but he didn't have the stomach for it. So they fired him, brought in uh, Putin, who proved himself by, he got rid of um, the prosecutor general who was starting to open up cases against the Yeltsin family and Berezovsky. Um, they, they basically, you know, Putin essentially like hid in the closet with a camera and filmed them screwing some, some prostitutes and then put it on the air. A classic <clears throat> move. Yeah. yeah. Americans <laughs> could learn something from that. We need more yeah. of the, we need more like Anthony Weiner scandals or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, there was the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, but Yeah, they, but we didn't get any tapes. We didn't have any tapes. Yeah, they took the tapes. Yeah, they did. Um. Yeah, that was that was too juicy. See, that's that's a level, that's a brain breaking level. So you have to have it prostitutes, you know, yeah. in a room. Yeah. Kind of a big 
you know, 60 year old prosecutors buy it. It's, uh, it's it does someone sitting on your lap in a sauna. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and so Yeltsin, I mean, Putin proved his loyalty. Putin was not, um, you know, he, he, he had the metal to, to do what it took. And so, I mean, he's often blamed for the second Chechen war. We never talk even about the first Chechen war anymore, even though that one was way bloodier, killed way more people, the first one. But that's because we financed the entire thing. And the New York Times, compa Clinton compared Yeltsin to Abraham Lincoln in the first Chechen war. The second one, we like to blame. <laughs> well, a on lot of soldiers did get killed. And the second one is blamed entirely on Putin. But it was really, the second one was intended to protect you know, they say well, it was all about boosting Putin's ratings. It's true. Putin didn't have much power yet. It was about protect, you know, coming up with a, a way to protect the Yeltsin family. You get a war going to make Putin popular, to kind of put a lid on everything, including opposition to, to the Yeltsin family. And, you know, the first decree that Putin signed when Yeltsin handed him the keys to the White House was complete immunity for Boris Yeltsin and his family <laughs> for life. That was it. There was the, so that's the deference. If there was deference, that's the deference. Mm. It's like, man, you really did save me. You really didn't go back on your deal because Yeltsin was a dick to Gorbachev. Um, he was a, a vindictive prick to Gorbachev, and he kind of expected at some point Putin would go back on his word, and he didn't. So, and now Putin's yeah. here to stay. Yeah, Putin's <laughs> here to stay. Um, you know, and it's funny. Putin was. A protege, I mean, his name, he was actually brought to Moscow and elevated to the head up the FSB by this guy, Anatoly Chubias. He's the guy that had Americans cheering him. He's the guy whose, whose buddies were caught with the suitcase. Mm. So Chubias was the main liaison between the Clinton administration and the Yeltsin regime. Um, you know, Larry, Larry Summers called him my dear friend, Anatoly Chubias. The press yeah. loved him, like, ate out of his hand. He's the guy, because... He, Putin was from Petersburg and Chubias was from Petersburg and Chubias was a more powerful figure. Putin was like some muscle and somebody Chubias needed, you know, in a system like that, you want to put in your guys. Mm -hmm. um, so really, like, without Clinton and without American interference, Putin would never have been the guy who was, who was put there. <laughs> Which is so <laughs> ironic, considering now he's the one interfering in our elections. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Imagine that. <laughs> Yeah, I know. There's a Trump is to be learned. Trump is our Putin. <laughs> <laughs> saying that. That's Same like guy. yeah, Yasha. Yeah. That's what Yasha Monk says or whatever, right? <laughs> the good Yasha. Mm. There's two. Yeah, every country God. has two Yashas. Yeah, one's good and one's bad. Yasha Monk yep. is like that. You know, you're talking about like David Remnick and all those guys from the mid '90s. Yasha Monk is like that version now. Always mm. pronouncing something, and then like six the months later, guy. yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, I, yeah. "Guys, I think we need to start taking a hard look at what's happening in Hungary." And you're like, "Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Yasha Monk." <laughs> you're on it, Yasha Monk's on it. Problem solved. I know, like Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> These guys, I know, and talking about populism, and I mean, it's the things are just so bad. Like they. They can't get anything right. That's what I find kind of weird. I mean, you know, for worse and for worse, I'm old enough to remember when they got some things right. I mean, there was a time. I guess I guess what happened with journalism, at least in the mid-70s, it was, it was, I mean, I say this on Radio Warner a lot, like it was basically, it was like our glasnost, you know, it was mm. our perestroika, our glasnost. Yeah. And, and there really was, and, but, but 
it wound up having a kind of bad effect in a way. I mean, first of all, it brought us Reagan eventually because because Americans are crazy yeah. and they didn't really like learning all that stuff um, and didn't want to fucking hear about it anymore. That <laughs> uh, was kind of what happened. Um, but uh, but also what it did is it it gave these really rotten media institutions um, this this sort of story to tell for decades after mm -hmm. we're needed for democracy yeah. because in that two year Pentagon period, papers. Yeah. Like in this two or three year period, um, we actually did our job and without us, where would you be today? You know? Yeah. I will say, my dad yeah. was a journalist a well, up until last year, I guess like he worked at a local news station and in the, I believe early seventies, he was present, although neither, neither on the giving nor receiving end of the first on-radio blowjob ever given. My father was in the room <laughs> for that uh, in San Francisco. Wow. So, you know, it's... So an actual blowjob, not a... To completion. PR fluff job. <laughs> no, a, a real a DJ actual, got wow. his dick sucked uh, vocally on air. Wow. While my father, I guess, uh, watched or tried not to watch this. I guess there's only two options there. <laughs> I know. Wow. Uh, he and that guy, I believe, later... Uh, uh, pushed a stolen car into the, the San Francisco Bay. <laughs> wow. See, this is back when journalism was yeah. a real profession. Exactly. Yeah. Chip off the old block, Brace. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I don't know how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> but can you push? You know, I, I yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're kind of running out of time here. I mean, is there... I don't even know how to cap this off. Mm. Um, it should be depressing. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's think of some way we can... Dial the mood down and walk away feeling partly suicidal. No, I, I, um, I don't know. Uh, what is the lesson? I mean, I do think a, a lesson is that um, Trump is not the worst of what we're going to see, mm. I, I guess, is the point. I mean, you know, we, we all go on our own paths, but like, um, I think it's, it seems to me almost inevitable. I mean, if, if the 2008-9 bailouts and the Bush fail war failures and stuff led and Obama's bailout corruption led to Trump. And now we just had the same thing on steroids with no talk. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's so much worse now and the reporting is so much worse. And, you know, again, I mean, for all the shit we give all the major media and the centrist and liberal media, and they do screw up all the time. They're still, kind of important and it just it blows my mind still that they spent two and a half years on a conspiracy theory that trump was put into the white house by putin controlled bots or something it's the weirdest mm -hmm. story and then it fell apart and people believed it like they be believed i don't know anything they've ever wanted to believe in and um <clears throat> and it fell apart and so i just i feel like you know if Russia had anything to, to teach us in that way, I mean, things, well, but Putin, you can't say is worse than Yeltsin, but from, from what we, I think, kind of believe in and stand for, it, it, it would be worse. I mean, it's a semi-dictator, you know? It's, yeah. it's fucked up. It's, it's the failure of democracy. I mean, like I said, the, the population, which really kind of initially really welcomed democracy and, I mean, a real democracy like they had in the very last sort of three, four years of the Soviet Union, the first maybe year or two of Yeltsin's regime, they had somewhat 
democracy. Um, by the end of the 90s, people wanted to see the media get stomped. And I mean, this is, a this is probably the most popular thing Putin did was end oligarch ownership of media and media wars and all the bullshit. And they just, it's all these years later and still a lot of people, they don't care that much that their media is state-run fucked up. I mean, there's a class that does, the kind of liberal urban professional class, but, um, but it's amazing that it's kind of lasted that long. And, you know, um, it would be a lot worse. I mean, I don't think we would get somebody as kind of, as, as semi-dictators go, successful as Putin. I think we get a much, much, much worse version of that. And Trump will be looked at as like a feckless, a feckless hack. You know, people yeah. have no idea what authoritarianism is. Yeah. Um, but, but also like the decay of democracy, it's, it's very, very real. It's very real, and um, uh, I don't know. It's 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 fucking bad. I mean, it's I can't you know I can't even think of uh, a, a comparison to Trump versus Biden. Oh my it's god! Amazing. It's it's like, like poetic, there isn't it? No analogy. Yeah, there is no analogy. It's just Wait. it feels like two dueling, decaying institutions. Yeah, exactly. what are you guys talking about? It's like Yeltsin versus Zuganov. <laughs> it kind of it it is. is. Trump is like a sober Yeltsin, <laughs> right? Doesn't he say he never never? Yeah, drinks? he, he doesn't does drink. Adderall, yeah, but he doesn't drink. He's a cola um, man. <laughs> yeah, cola and Adderall, I guess, and. um and Biden is just, uh, you know, but you can't say that he's got dementia, you know, but uh, fuck, we all know, we, you know, we all have. I mean, he, he, if he doesn't have, he should, if he doesn't have dementia, he's just fucking dumb. And so it's like, <laughs> I don't is, know, so. it's, I don't know if, I don't know really what's, which alternative which, people would prefer. Yeah, which is yeah. better. But at least having dementia makes me feel sorry for you. Yeah, I know, exactly. I no, mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bad. It's, it's bad. And so I, I just think like, we're, we're just in for bad, weird fucking times ahead. Very weird and very bad times. And um, when you think things can't get weirder and worse. Um, they will. You know, you'll look back six months later and say, God, how good we had it then. Yeah, they will. <laughs> and I think that's the kind of note I'd like to leave us on. It can get well, worse and it will. I, you guys, I, I tell this, I've said this before on the show, but listeners, my favorite podcast is Radio War Nerd. Well, uh, thank you. Done Man, by likewise. I'm not joking. I actually don't really listen to podcasts. I'm kind of embarrassed to say I don't really listen to podcasts. I don't really know the genre too well. And I started listening to you guys, and I, I, you guys are doing a lot of them too lately, and I love it. And you guys are like, uh, you just have a real, uh, you're more than just commenting. I don't know, you're, you're funny and, and um, uh, a good escape too at the same. You're like funny and a good escape while talking about things that are relevant. And also you like to go down rabbit holes, and I fucking love going down <laughs> rabbit holes. Like, should not fear the rabbit hole, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's you. You, you guys got to check out Warner. The the like they were saying that the coverage they've been doing on COVID from Italy uh, with with Anabale has been fantastic. Yeah, Who's probably that guy's probably my favorite. No disrespect to you or any of our other guests. That guy's probably the most beloved guest on any podcast. I know in <laughs> podcast history. Yeah, he's just no, got we, that voice, and it's yeah, so he, reassuring. 
it is reassuring. He's like, he can tell you about how you're going to die a horrible death and everybody knows, but you feel somehow reassured, like, ah, I'm in a yeah. cardigan and sipping, you know, hot cocoa. And <laughs> exactly. My horrible death is coming. But he does. But no, he's great. He's one going. day when, when, when I finally figured out the exact uh, combination of research chemicals, which cures COVID-19, we will do a show together. <laughs> great. That sounds uh, great. Yes, we will. I know. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. We are going to do it. By gum, that virus will not stop us. <laughs> we will do it. There you go. <laughs> um, but cool. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You know what's weird? Spasibo is Russian for thanks, mm. but in Kurdish, it's spas. They have like no other similarities. Interesting. Nobody can tell me what that's about. Hey, if you know what that's about, let me know. That sounds nice. Yeah. That was a fantastic interview. I love talking about this stuff. I was telling you, I could go a lot longer. I have, yeah, I have, I have lots of thoughts and things to say about what the Americans did in Russia between like, Basically, 96 and 98. It's so insane. It's so insane. Just another country that we're responsible for the total, complete destruction of. Mm -hmm. And people forget that. Well, I don't think people are usually taught that in the first place, Liz. I know. That's right. They never learned. All I know when I was growing up is that Russia was baller and red-pilled. And then sometime in the 90s, it became... uh, Cuckolded and blue pilled, <laughs> but also scarier. <laughs> Cucked and blue pilled is scarier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. All right. So I think it's time to go. Yeah. Let's cut it off. <laughs> uh, wait, hold on. I'm trying not to embarrassingly cough. Every time anyone coughs on a podcast, I'm very aware of it. So I'm just going, <laughs> I feel like clear the, my throat. I think you that's- guys like that. No, 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 no. You're good. I, I like to be transparent. Okay, this has been. Why do, I don't do that. That's not part of our outro. I don't know why I'm doing that. My name is Brace. <laughs> I'm Liz. We're joined by Young Chomsky, and that is true enough. <laughs> bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.